0: Hey, good morning, my name is Dominic. Um, if you're a guest with us, we're glad that you're here. Um, Miss Hill family, good morning, good to see you. Um, last year, I had the privilege of uh, speaking a couple different times at a handful of different places and venues, and one of them, uh, there's, I had to go to kind of a pre-event and got to meet some people, hang out and talk, and then the next day was the actual like speaking engagement. And after I got up and, and spoke, got to kind of interact with some of those same people, And this one guy came up to me, and he said, oh, he goes, I owe you an apology. And I was like, why? Like, what happened? And he goes, well, yesterday when I met you, he goes, I just, I thought you were like some kid. He goes, and I said, oh, no, no problem. And he goes, but thanks for your word. Thanks for that. And I just, I wanted to say I'm sorry. And I said, bro, I didn't even know, like, it's okay. And um, he said, yeah, I just, I thought you'd look different, particularly like older, um, and maybe some other things. And. You guys know me, you know, like, if I've heard that once, I've heard that probably like 10,000 times. It happens a lot. Um, and then last week, I was having lunch uh, with a friend, and he was telling me about a conference that he was at and how someone stood up to speak. And he was telling me, yeah, this doctor talked about this stuff and that stuff. And, and I said, oh, what, what, what kind of doctor was she? And he said, oh, or I said, what kind of doctor was he? And he said, well, she was trained and studied in this. And I'll be honest, I was really embarrassed. Even as I admit it now you, I'm embarrassed. Um, like, why in my mind when he says doctor, do I ironically say he? Like, why couldn't I have said she? This morning, we're going to be opening up again the book of James. And um, James chapter 2, James is going to be talking to us and teaching to us about partiality. About making judgments based upon external factors. Or making judgments and sowing partiality or favoritism based upon external factors and also internal factors. (laughs) External factors meaning the way that we judge others, but internal factors meaning based upon how we make those judgments, what we expect of others, what in our minds and in our hearts we have set up as these different paradigms or structures or systems of the way things should be, the way people should be, the way things are or aren't, based upon, again, partiality, favoritism. So if you have your Bible this morning, we're going to continue in this series of, of James uh, called James, the challenge of faith. And this morning, what James is going to express to us and, and invite us to think about and wrestle with is that partiality, favoritism, it, it, it's a very practical challenge of faith. I'll be the first to admit, and even based upon that statement I made over lunch with my friend, I, 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 I live with partiality. I, I live and I, I'm, I almost feel naturally wired to be a person who judges and makes judgments. Anybody else relate to that? I won't make you raise your hand, but I, I, just, I know that about myself. Um, and so even studying this this week was re- really, really convicting, really humbling, and, and really healthy actually to wrestle with some things. So James chapter 2, uh, starting, we're going to read 1 through 13. If you'd read it with me, should be up above. It says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's funny, as I read that this morning, even look up at the front row, we're not a very partial community, are we? No one, no one ever sits up here. And I was thinking about that, honestly, all week going, I, this is like, okay, I knew there'd be nobody here. Um, anyways, I had to just get over that. I had to put that out there. So we're doing all right. Everybody ready? Let's worship. We're done? Good? Cool? No. Um, James starts off right out the gate. My brother's. My brothers and sisters, family, family of God, show no partiality, or again, favoritism, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's his key, that's a key statement for us today, but we're going we're gonna to hold on to it for a second because we're going to come back to it, but we got to look at some things to really understand, I think, what James is talking about, even in that intro sentence of, of chapter two here. But James goes on in verses two through four to give us really this uh, kind of a case study, if you will, that's what kind of I'll call it. He's, he's given this description, I mean, he says to them, hey, so if, if somebody rich, if somebody wealthy, if somebody who, for by all external appearances, look like they're doing well and they're doing good, he goes, why is it that you tell them, hey, come and sit up in these front seats here? But if someone who walks in who looks like maybe they've fallen on hard times, who's maybe not as clean, maybe smells a little different, looks different than what you'd expect someone walking in their community looks like, why is it that you tell them, oh, just stand off to the side, stand here, or sit there, just somewhere out of the way, please? Or even just sit at my feet. And if you think about this culture, they wore open-toed sandals. And they walked in roads that animals walked in. And their feet were super, super dirty. Think about what that invitation is. Oh, here, just just sit at my dirty, stinky feet. That's, in my mind, the value, the worth that you have here as you walk in when you don't look put together. Or if you're looking less than what I'd expect someone to be a follower of Christ or engaging in synagogue conversations to look like. If you look good, as I expect and as I want, come sit here. If not, just over there, please, because <laughs> I'm trying to do some stuff. We're, we're, we're trying to do some stuff here. So James gives us this, this case study. Now, one thing I want to point out in verse 4, he says, So have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Again, what we're talking about today is these external distinctions that are made this partiality or or favoritism based upon the externals of those that we see but when he talks about it being a judgment that we're making based on our evil thoughts again really what we're talking about the, the, the battle here isn't just external the battle is a battle of my mind and my heart and one thing to consider as well the case study that he gives us here is about rich and poor but everything he's talking about is far more than rich and poor What he's really talking about today is honor and about glory. The reason why I can say that is this. James goes on in verse 5 and he says, Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? What James is saying here is that often people who have very little, they actually learn to honor and trust God in incredible ways because they need to, they have to often in ways that those who have much never learn to and never need to. And James says, which of those is more honorable? Which is a greater life of faith and a greater life of trust? Which one should be honored more? He goes on then and he says, and are they not heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Again, James is talking about heirs of the kingdom. Again, he's talking about honor and receiving something. He's saying, ultimately, these people are rich, they just don't get their inheritance yet. They might be poor here on earth, but they're rich in faith. They're rich in love. They're rich in their dependence upon God. In the words of Jesus, James' brother, I think James was probably was thinking about maybe the Sermon on the Mount where at the, towards the end of it, Jesus actually said, don't store up for yourselves treasures here on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven. And I think James, again, is inviting us to think about which of those is more honorable, Really, a life lived treasuring everything here on earth or a life in which you believe and you know and you live by faith that my inheritance is to come. Which should we in the church really honor? (laughs) Which should be more valued? Which should be thought of as a, a life more esteemed? James closes this section by saying, but you, again, dishonor the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, in order to understand that, we've got to understand a little bit of context of what was going on. Remember, James is, uh, we believe, the brother or the half-brother of Jesus. He's pastoring the church in Jerusalem. So it's a a church predominantly of Jews, but some Gentiles have begun to come in. This is only 10 years-ish after Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the early church. They're, they're, they're potentially in these, this surrounding in this area where they're being persecuted, being pressed on because it's first century, and they've chosen many of them as Jews, to, to follow Jesus, and these Jews and Gentiles are doing life together, again, which wasn't a common thing, so there's reason for, to be looked at weird there. And so what was happening, and the reason why he gives us the case study of this rich and the poor, this example, is because there were those in the community who were coming in who weren't even followers of Jesus, but they were coming, and they were holding still a place of prominence inside the church. Think, if you will, of, of the way that the, the people when during Jesus' day thought about the synagogue and the temple, right? They turned it into a market. There was all kinds of corrupt stuff going on. And they're, they're in the first century, they're still dealing with that. So there's rich people coming in. They're not even Christ followers. And outside of the community, guess what they're doing? They're acting as non-Christ followers. They're seizing land from poor people, and they're taking it. They're hiring people who, are, who they meet actually in the church community who are Christ followers, but they're not paying them a fair wage. And so outside of the church, outside of the community, they're... They're not honorable or respected at all. They're not living like Christ. But they step into the church and what happens? People see them and go, oh, come have the good seat. Why? Because they're showing partiality. They're showing favoritism. And that's why James says, aren't these rich people who are inside your community, aren't they the ones who drag you into court when you can't even defend yourself? Why would you give them a seat of honor based upon worldly factors, their richness, as opposed to their faith, their honor of Jesus? Now, again, to be clear, as James has talked about money other times, wealth is not wrong. Wealth is not bad. And James here is not saying that all rich people are bad. James is saying these rich people, though, were bad. And the church was acting foolishly when they were engaged or confronted with rich people because the church was doing what the church ought not do. The church, in this case, was acting like the world. Showing partiality and giving people, again, special privilege based upon external things as opposed to their faith, as opposed to their heart, as opposed to the amount of trust that they live in before the living God, King Jesus, who is the Lord of glory. You guys tracking with me so far? I want to give you a little picture, a little Venn diagram, that I think really summarizes kind of the, maybe the key issue at heart and at play here. On the, the right-hand side you have the kingdom of God circle. The kingdom of God circle, I'll describe just this way, that it's, it's G, what Jesus is alive. He's reigning. He's ruling right now. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. And God's people are united right now together and they will be united together forever someday under his loving lordship. That's, that's kind of a simple definition of his kingdom, right? Would you agree with me there? And on the left-hand side, you, you have the world. That's where we are today. And in the world... We're we're living amidst amidst cultures and nations that don't submit to King Jesus. They don't believe that the right-hand circle even exists. And so they have different values, different priorities, different beliefs by which they live by. And I know the color's not showing up real great, but do you see in the middle, the church? The church belongs to the right-hand side. The church belongs to the eternal kingdom of God, both now and for all eternity. But, we do have to live life in this world today. God's people are called by grace to live by faith in the present reality of the world, but with our eyes fixed and focused on the reality of the kingdom. And not only that, we're called to help bring or usher in often, as the word used, the realities of the kingdom today, here now in the present. And so James is getting on them and he got on my heart this, this week as I read through this, going, the church ought not look like the world. The partialities that exist out in the world, fine. That's the world. The, the world knows no better. The world has no different way of doing anything other than to judge by externals. Other than to separate and segregate and do all that judgmental stuff. That, that's that's the, what the world does. But the church? The church has a different head. The church has a different story that it's a part of. The church has a different reality that it's been saved and redeemed into, and so the church ought not look like the world. Again, maybe in Jesus' words, we're in the world, but we're not of it. And so what's the what's the real issue? What's the real problem? Again, on one hand, it's that the church was acting like the world, but on the other hand, as I spoke about earlier, it's, it's really about honor and glory. This isn't just about rich and poor. Because if you think about it, we make external distinctions in the world, and even sometimes in our own hearts, in the church, based upon many other different things—not just rich and poor, but male and female, color of skin, education levels, Uh, where where do you live? Right. So this is about honor and glory. And what James is saying is that when we make distinctions based upon external factors, we're judging people, we're showing partiality, we're showing favoritism, through a worldly lens. And that dishonors people. And as he says in verse 7, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Not only are you dishonoring the poor, these people, he says, but you're also dishonoring God. You're dishonoring the name of Jesus Christ. See, the origin of partiality um, is, is one of two things. It's either a craving for human glory or we are partial to something and someone out of fear. We show partiality out of a craving for our own human glory in this way. When we show partiality to the rich, to the powerful, to the haves, to people of the same skin color as us, to this people who have certain things that, that we like, what we're doing is we're actually hoping to find favor with them in order that we might belong to them or in order that they might do something for us. Do you see that? Why? why again, why were these people in the, showing partiality to these rich people? They were hoping that they might then outside of church during the week, like, maybe get hired by them, not even realizing that these people, again, were, weren't going to pay them a fair wage. But, oh, or that they could hang out and have lunch with them. They could associate with them. So we do that. It, it's based out of, again, he says, evil intentions. It's, it's, it's craving for our own human glory. Or it's based out of fear. How, how does fear play into my partiality? You show partiality to those that you believe can make you feel safe or safer. Think, think, think for a moment about racism. At the heart and the core of racism, it's, it's really about fear. I'm going to be more partial to those who look like me, have the same skin color as me, have the same cultural understandings as me. Why? Because I feel safe there. If I let someone else who has a different skin color, different cultural background, if I let them come in and be amidst my community or, or just be in this area, I, I don't know what they're going to do because they look different than me. That makes me afraid. So I'm going to lobby and do whatever I can. Just everybody that looks like me, let's make this thing as homogenous as possible because that's comfortable, that's safe. You're not even talking about their heart. Do they honor God? Do they live by faith? You're looking merely at the externals and going, uh, no thank you. You, you. You guys tracking with me? This isn't just about rich and poor. This is about honoring people the way that God honors them. This is about viewing people the way that God views them. This is far more than, again, the case study that James laid before us. It's about honor and about glory. It's about the motivations and the intentions of our hearts, the way that we view and that we see people. And again, both the craving for human glory or fear, which lead to partiality, both of those are rooted in a desire that we personally have something to gain. The focus really then is on my glory, my honor my advantage. And James again is saying in the world, yeah, the world, that's the way the world runs. That's what it's all based on. But the church and those who follow the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been invited to a much different story. A far more beautiful, far grander story than to live according to those things. I want to remind you of James chapter 1, uh, verse 27. And if you weren't here last week, I'd, I'd encourage you to go listen to, to Joel, uh, teach that, that whole portion. But James 1, verse 27, um, James writes this, and he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To keep oneself unstained from the world. Again, I think what James is saying here is that, unfortunately, in his own church, in his own community of Christ followers, they were being stained by the world, <laughs> and they were showing this type of partiality, this type of favoritism. And so I think he's, he's piggybacking, falling right off that. And so I present that verse to say, James, how do we do that? How do we keep, especially in, this, in, in, as, in the context of this, as, as it deals with partiality, with favoritism, James, how do we keep ourselves unstained from the world? Well, that's exactly where James goes next in verses 8 through 11. James says this. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. I think James brings in this idea or the, the truths of, of the law of um, not committing adultery and, and, and not uh, committing murder to show us on one hand, like if you think about it, those are, on, those are part of the Ten Commandments, right? Those are pretty big deals, you'd say. I think James brings those into light to say favoritism is just as big of a deal. We might not think it is because it didn't make the Ten Commandments, but when we live showing partiality, when we live showing favoritism, when we live judging others based upon externals, he's saying it, it's, it's, it's just about equal, right? Wasn't Jesus always doing that? Jesus was always extending the boundary of the way people understood the law. Jesus said, I, I, I say not only don't commit adultery, but don't look at a woman lustfully in your eyes. Oh, okay, that's, that's a whole different thing now, isn't it? James, I think, again, is elevating partiality, favoritism, to that level to say this is, it, it really pains, it really hurts God just as much as these other things are. Why? Because, again, it's, it's a dishonoring, it's a disaggrading of people, which ultimately then is a dishonoring of God in the way he's designed and created them. He says, instead, how are we to live? Live fulfilling the royal law, the great scripture that says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you are doing well. Now James is quoting this again as a good Jew and in, in, in a predominantly Jewish church um, from Leviticus. I want to I turn there and read for you Leviticus uh, 19. And we're going to read a chunk here that just kind of shows us again the context of even this, this command of love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19 verse 9. We'll start there. And it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourners, and I'm telling you to do this because I'm the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall, but, but you shall fear your God, because I am the Lord, your God. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, and you shall not but excuse me, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Verse 18: "You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord." That whole chunk there, that whole chapter brought up all the key words that James was talking about, dishonouring, paying fair wages. Uh, how are you hiring people? How are you treating people? Ultimately saying, no, the, the, the way to not view things in people in light of just the externals, these system structures that the world operates in, is to submit, to surrender, to live our lives really believing in the truth and the reality of, of this royal law, love your neighbor as yourself. And James goes further, to, to, again, I think we could ask the question, well, James, how do we do that? James then again talks about all of us having broken the law. He who says, I've never committed adultery or done murder, but if you do commit adultery, but you've not committed murder, well, haven't you transgressed the law? What James is kind of saying is that the law, you can almost view it as a glass. Right? A glass should be clear. A glass should be solid. A glass should be one piece. Maybe think of a windshield. If you've got one dent, one ding in your windshield, is it it still a perfect, pristine windshield? No. It's busted. And even even though you can see clear over here, but over here it's a little bit jacked up, James is saying, no, that whole thing then has been jacked up. You guys get the picture? So he's stirring the pot here again. James does that. He talks deep. He talks honest. He talks very poignant to the realities and true things of our hearts. But he comes down and he says this in verse 12. He says, therefore, or so, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy, to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. What is James saying there? He's saying in these verses that, again, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. But he's also saying the gift of God is life through Christ Jesus our Lord, the free gift, again, Romans 3.24. He's saying if we understand and if we live in that story, the reality of of looking at the fact that that we are all going to be judged someday, but we're all going to be judged by who? The righteous judge, the only one who actually truly has the right to judge, God, the one who set the royal law, the one who is the Lord of glory. We're all going to stand before Him someday, and the way He judges us is not unjust, but the way He judges us is based in mercy. I want to give you guys a definition of mercy that has been helpful for me. When you think of mercy, I think often, Christian, we, we say that it's, it's not getting what we deserve, right? How many of you guys have heard that? Mercy is just, it's just not getting what you deserve. But I think mercy more fully is this. A.W. Tozer says it this way. He says, mercy is the proactive display of God's love to the guilty. It's compassion extended to those in need. The proactive display of God's love to the guilty, compassion extended to those in need. In this scenario and in this case, this case study that James gave us of the rich and the poor and the way they treated him, if the church sees someone that's in need, what mercy would say, according to James, is not you judge them and you say, oh, go sit over there, but mercy would say, I have love for you and I want to proactively move towards you The way that God has loved me and proactively moved towards me. And when I see you, if I see that you're in need, again, I'm not going to judge you and set you to the side, but true mercy says, I'm going to enter in to your pain with you. it's, It's compassion. It's suffering with someone because we recognize their need. Do you see that? And that's why James brings this down to this issue of mercy and of judgment and the fact that mercy triumphs over judgment. Because when we live as the world and we view people based upon externals, we're judging. We're judging on things that that are not right, they're not just, they're not true. Again, it's based upon our own sinful thoughts, James says, which are often aligned with what? Our agenda. Me being the best. And so I want people who look like me to be up front because that makes me feel good. I want those who are different, me to know, be nowhere near the front or the action because that'll make me feel good and safe too. So again, James is calling us, what are the intentions of our heart as we live out this life following Jesus in the world. Mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. In Christ Jesus, there is mercy. That, that's the good news. And Missy, I think this is really important for us as we begin to enter into the season, even of Lent and of Southwest Hope. As we begin to talk more about what does it look like for us to become a safe families church. We hear of families that have need. Are we sitting there going, well, why do they have need? What did they do to get in that situation? Well, I don't have that much need. I got my education. I got my stuff together. Maybe if they did too, they they wouldn't need a safe family. Or do we hear there's need? A child needs a safe family. And compassion, entering in and suffering with, moves us to this place that says, oh my goodness, there are people created in the image and the likeness of God, the Lord of glory who have his love in them, who have his breath in them, who have his life in them. And mercy, not judgment, but mercy, compels me to see them in their need and to go toward them and to love them. As we talk about Compassion Southwest in the the health clinic, and we talk about are we going to support and care for those in our own neighborhood who need extra help with basic health care. Again, do we sit there and go, oh, well, I got my job and so I got all my stuff and my name has a 401k and my deductible is only like 10 bucks. My plan is sweet. Or is it mercy, is it compassion that says, oh my goodness, there are people in this world who have come on hard times. They, maybe they, Again, we don't know the story, but in our mind when we hear these things, Southwest Hope, Safe Families, Be the Bridge, talking about rec- racial reconciliation, everyday life is our first thought to go towards this place of judgment based upon externals. Or do we remember, do we remember The grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. That while we were yet sinners, while we were yet the ones that didn't look the part, Christ came and died for us. God proactively moved towards us in love first. He came and he suffered with us. He extended compassion when we were in our time of need. Romans 5, 6 to 11. Let me read that. I think this really is the capturing of of mercy. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. For while we were weak, while we were in need, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, me. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a person who would, a good person, one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were in our need, while we were in our brokenness, we had no way out. Some, the, way, the way we got there, God really didn't ask. The way we got there, sometimes it just. Man, it's crazy, but Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, by his suffering, him entering in and suffering in the midst of our need, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, see, often when we make judgments based upon externals, you know what we do? We set people up as our enemies. Again, trying to protect ourselves from them based upon just pure external things. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God By the death of his son. Again, God enters into the midst of the suffering with us, for us, to save us in our need. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We live this life of rejoicing in the glory and in the honor of God alone. That, that's where I said we'd come back to, is coming back to verse 1. And that's where James goes. He says, my brothers, my sisters, family of God, show no partiality, show no favoritism, show no sexism, show no racism, show no any of those isms, because that's what partiality ultimately leads to is all of those. Show none of that as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And he's really focusing all throughout this passage. He's, he's talked a couple times about the royal law, which is what the king's law, He's talking about royal here. He's talking about glory. Glory, again, in the Old Testament, it's like, the word it tells us about, it's like weight, it's kabod, and sometimes that's like even still weird. But, but the Greek word is it's doxa. And doxa, when you talk about glory, it's having a good opinion or a high opinion of someone. That when you think of them, you automatically come to this place of having a good or a high opinion. What James is saying is that if we view Jesus as the Lord of glory, if we truly believe he's, died for, he's lived for us, he's died for us, he's resurrected for us, he is the Lord of glory, then when we think of him, we have the highest good opinion of him more so than anything else in the world. you see that? Again, it's about honor and glory. Do I hold myself of the highest and good opinion? And therefore, then I judge people and have partiality based upon my protection. Or do I hold Jesus Christ? Jesus as the Christ. Jesus as the Lord. Jesus as the King. Jesus as the one sitting on the seat, the throne of glory and I think of him, and I can't help because of what he's done for me. Think of him in the highest esteem, the place of highest honor and highest glory. You know what that does? It humbles me. It humbles me. Because I remember who I was before Christ found me. And I remember who I am even in the process of Christ saving me. And then I look around at the world, and what, can I, what do I do? I can't help but view them in the same light. Those just like me in need of God's grace, God's mercy. Your skin color doesn't matter. Your socioeconomics doesn't matter. Your race doesn't matter. A lot of these other isms that we've set up don't really matter. It's about their heart. It's about what what is honoring to God. What gives God the honest glory as I look at people and treat people? I'll close with this. Augustine once said that once we settle the issue of glory... When the issue of glory is settled, all conflicts will be settled. When the issue of glory, when we hold Jesus as the most glorious one, the one who is to receive all the honor, all the glory, the one who we have the highest opinion of, once that's settled in our heart, honor and glory is for Jesus, all other conflicts will be settled. The ones that we have internally and the ones that play out externally. Now now I'll really close. Here's this. Uh, uh, worship team, if you want to come up, you can. Um, I want to read for you Psalm 99 and let this be the place that we go to worship. It says, The Lord reigns. Let peoples tremble. He, the Lord, sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all other peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, Lord. Holy is he. The king, Jesus, is in his might. He loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. For he is holy, holy is he. Let me pray for us, and we'll take communion. Lord, this morning, um, <laughs> I'm humbled again as I read through and consider James's words that God, you are rich in mercy, you are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God that you don't judge us based upon externals, you don't judge us even based upon our own doings or failings. But you look at us through the lens of what your son Jesus Christ has done or not done. That that's what it means when we're in Christ, is that God, you look at us in Christ and you, 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 you do judge. You do make a distinction, but you say that we're holy, we're righteous because of what your son Jesus has done. Lord, in light of that mercy, in light of that grace, in light of your profound love, God, would you continue to transform us? Transforms our hearts, transform our minds, transform us, God. Transform our judgments, our eyes, the way that we see people, the the things that we've set up, the structures in our own hearts and minds. Lord, would you transform them so that they align with your truth, with your love, with your mercy, so that we honor people and by doing so, honor you. Jesus, thank you for extending the love of God the Father to us in our time of need. Thank you for coming and suffering along with us. Thank you for this table this morning that reminds us that you are a God of mercy, a God of compassion, a God of love. Thank you for your body broken, your blood shed, for the forgiveness of our sins, for the renewal of our hearts, our minds, of our lives this table, this new identity that we have because of it that sends us out into the world as your ambassadors, your representatives to live as light into the midst of the injustices of darkness, to live as love in the midst of the places that are confining and constraining people because of the judgments and the partialities that exist in our world. God, would we walk with you? Would we live for you? May we be in this world, but not of it. Would we be the people of this table, the people of redemption, the people of life in Christ, who love richly as you've loved us? Jesus, let that start in my own heart.